Welcome to MediaPath. I am Louise Palanker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. We are here to lead you down a scenic pathway dotted with books and movies and music and perhaps the occasional wildflower. So, by way of full disclosure, we are recording this show on Election Day, just an hour before results are due in, which should explain the occasional cracks in our voices. Our guest coming up is best-selling author Peter Carlin, who has written award-winning books about Brian Wilson, Bruce Springsteen, and Paul Simon. But first, Fritz, what have you been watching and reading this week? Okay, well, I, I haven't watched this yet, but I'm so stoked about it because we had a podcast that included a member of this person's family, as you know. I'm going to talk about Mank, which is a movie that comes out on Netflix on November 15th. This is directed by David Fincher, stars Gary Oldman as Herman Mankiewicz, who is the brother of Joseph Mankiewicz. And one of the books I talked about on an earlier show was The Brothers Mankiewicz. These are screenwriters and directors and producers, and some of the greatest, most literate and brilliant in the history of Hollywood. Herman is the grandfather of Josh Mankiewicz, who's been on this podcast. He's one of the hosts of NBC's Dateline. Herman was a genius with a lot of demons. He shared writing credit with Orson Welles for Citizen Kane. He was a raging alcoholic, a self-saboteur. This is a fantastic look at how smart but crazy 1930s Hollywood was. Directed by David Fincher, of course, he directed Seven and The Social Network and Gone Girl. Gary Oldman won an Oscar for Winston Churchill role in The Darkest Hour. It also stars Amanda Seyfried and Charles Dance. I'm stoked about this movie. I'm really interested that they found something this, uh, this far back in history that they thought would be appealing to a general audience. But you know, if you're interested in the story behind what many people consider the greatest film ever made, Citizen Kane, this is going to be a spectacular film, November 15th on Netflix. The book I'm recommending this week is called Leadership in Turbulent Times by Doris Kearns Goodwin. She's a Pulitzer Prize winning presidential historian. I love this lady. I that we would choose this topic. She looks at presidential leadership and how we should raise our expectations of what we expect from presidents in times of trouble. Now, her book, Lincoln, Team of Rivals, was one of the resources that Steven Spielberg used for his movie, Lincoln. Not only did Lincoln not vilify his political enemies and prosecute them later and get the Justice Department to seek them out, he appointed many of them to his cabinet because he was smart enough to realize that many of them had special talents that he, Lincoln, did not have, like Chase and uh, a couple of the other people, and the country would ultimately benefit from them. So two good choices, a book and a film, Wies. Yes. I, I'm interested. Did Do you know if Josh was consulted on the making of Mank? He was not. He never met his grandfather. He was very close to his grandmother. His grandfather died young because of his alcoholism. His grandmother is very close with, and the book Brothers Mankiewicz closes with a very poignant passage of him riding around in a convertible in Beverly Hills with his grandmother and how close they were. He was not consulted, but he said the movie is spectacular. They gave him like a coded link, and he and his brother Ben, who's on Turner Classic Movies, were able to watch it, and they both signed off on it being a wonderful piece of history, and many of the elements of which they were happy to admit they weren't aware of. So even they learned something from it. So I can't wow. wait to see it. Yeah, it's like a, vi a visit with Skip Gates down your... <laughs> You know, this is why I'm so smart. Thank you. <laughs> you know, because right. the guy was the guy was so self-destructive that, you know, he he should have been just completely vanquished from Hollywood. But he was also so damn amusing that he kept yeah. getting invited back to the table. And he was brilliant. You know, he was one of the members of the Algonquin Roundtable with Dorothy Parker, all these super smart, super funny people. And uh, I, I after I read that book, I went back and looked at all the movies that Herman and Joe directed and produced, Cleopatra, you know, all about Eve, all these amazing movies. And what you're stricken with was how smart they were. And I thought to myself, there's no way anybody would have greenlit a movie this literate now. And Josh, when I was talking to him about it, brought up a great point. He said, there weren't that many movies. People went to watch whatever was released. It wasn't like they had Netflix and Hulu and all this stuff. So people were sort of forced to watch smart movies against their will. And I thought that's an interesting point. But these guys were funny and literate and, uh, 
really, uh, I can't wait to see this film. Yes, same. All right, so my picks was I'm going to start out on election night thanking some of the programming and some of the folks who have guided us through the past, I'm going to call it five years, because last election cycle plus this administration. So I want to just reach out and say thank you to Rachel Maddow, Joy Reid, Nicole Wallace, Lawrence O'Donnell, Chris Hayes, Brian Williams, Fritz, what names would you add to this list? I wouldn't. You you just named uh, 24 of the 20, 20 of the 24 hours of my day right there. <laughs> as a matter of fact, as soon as I leave you, I'm going to get some bad takeout food and watch those guys do the post-closing polls wrap-up. Uh, it's it's a really difficult day. It's This is hard. Yeah. So I'm going to... I watched a film over the weekend that just kind of like took me elsewhere, which was wonderful. Uh, and it's called Bruce Springsteen's Letter to You. And it's on Apple, Apple Plus, Apple TV Plus, I guess is the name of the streaming service. It's a documentary from director Tom Zimney, shot in black and white because it's artful and it's Springsteen. So the music is the color. It's a recording studio doc featuring the E Street Band and loaded with full songs, introed by Bruce poetically speaking to you, the fan, the listener, as he conveys each song's origin story. We also get archival footage, raw honesty, and drone shots of snow-topped New Jersey trees, which serve as a lovely metaphor for time plus friendship equals beauty. The film presents an interesting contrast to the anguished specificity enforced by Springsteen in Zimney's first Springsteen doc, which chronicled the recording of 1975's Born to Run album. There is joy and relief in having created self and in sharing that creation with your besties. It's on Apple Streaming Plus. I highly recommend it. Our Can't guest is a man it. who has written about Springsteen and many great artists. So please welcome Peter Carlin. Hey, Pete. So glad you're here today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks Hope for we can do me. this in an hour. You've written so many interesting <laughs> stories. Yeah, I don't know if that's possible, but we, we're going to cram the course. Uh, Peter Ames Carlin is a journalist, critic, and author. Previously, a senior writer at People Magazine and a TV critic for the Oregonian newspaper. His work has been published in the New York Times Magazine, the Los Angeles Times Magazine, the Times UK, Men's Journal, and the British music magazine, The Word. He is the author of Sonic Boom, The Impossible Rise of Warner Brothers Records, which will be out in 2021, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon, Bruce, Paul McCartney, colon, A Life, and Catch a Wave, colon, The Rise, Fall, and Redemption of the Beach Boys' Brian Wilson. So, Peter, I want to start by talking about Catch a Wave, which is what led me to discover you and start to binge your, your additional works. But I want to talk about Catch a Wave and Brian Wilson. In writing this book, you poured through hours of unreleased studio recordings. How did you find them, and what did you discover and learn? Well, um, I found them, you know, there's like a network of, of you know, pretty, let's call them highly motivated fans. Fanboys? And, <laughs> and girls and, you yeah. know, fan folk. And um, so admittedly, pretty much all of them are boys, but um, be that as it may. And so when I began to reach out to folks and everything, then I got sort of hooked into this network and people were very helpful and friendly and began to kind of send me stuff. A lot of that stuff has been officially released in the subsequent 15 years, whatever it is. And, um, and, uh, and a whole, a lot, you know, and a, a lot of the rest of it is available on YouTube. If you look up stuff, there's tons and tons of, of outtakes and bootlegs of this, that, and the other that you can pull down off of, off of YouTube if you feel like it. But, um, you know, I mean, the Beach Boys alone among a lot of other, you know, seem to have produced about as much sort of unreleased material as, as any other band. I mean, they're alarming. Every time I think that there couldn't possibly be anything else good in their archive, something else pops up and it's like, oh my God, where did that come from? So it's, uh, you know, uh, there's just a lot of very highly motivated and very sort of, um, you know, borderline obsessive Brian Wilson fans. <laughs> <laughs> You we'll, know. Just, we'll just call it enthusiastic. Yeah, quite a lot of quite a lot of intense enthusiasm, and you know, people have developed their collections and stuff. Yeah, that's you really know, you know, it's really cool how people go deep, and when they get this is what our show is about with me and Fritz. It's like we get obsessed with stuff, and we go deep. Go ahead, Fritz. Oh no, I, I was just going to say that he's such an interesting character. I want I, I want you. I want somebody 
to finally explain to me what this psychological uh, crack was that occurred in his life, and was it a byproduct of his relationship with his therapist? I never understood what happened. Ben, this is a comment I'll make before you answer. I really learned a lot about Brian Wilson, uh, Peter, when I saw the movie The Wrecking Crew, Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I heard the other musicians talk about his brilliance mm-hmm. and how other people, including the Beatles, thought that Pet Sounds was like the seminal album ever produced and how he would come into Capitol Records with all these amazing ideas, nothing written down. He had them all up in his head and just spewed them out and created this astonishing musical magic. So even with all the stuff that happened with his dark journey of the mind, he was a brilliant, brilliant man. Is a brilliant man. I apologize. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I don't think it's the fight. I think in some ways it's because, um, you know, I mean, what happens is you get somebody who has probably a genetic propensity for psychiatric problems, you know, and then, you know, then, but then he's raised in a family that's defined by, you know, his dad's, you know, psychiatric problems, you know, and he inherited his from his dad's. And then you end up, you know, with a guy like Brian, whose brain just doesn't, for whatever, you know, set of organic um, and uh, nurture reasons, it doesn't work like yours and mine does. I mean, he's capable of visionary, visionary thought and creation. But on the other hand, he's also, you know, that comes with an undertow, which is, you know, which, which began to present itself as it does with people, um, you know, with the, the different kinds of organic psychosis does uh, in his early 20s. And that's when you begin to see, you know, the sort of breakdown in the mid 60s. The stuff with Dr. Landy in the mid 70s and then most damagingly in, 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 and for a longer period in, in the 80s was more sort of a function of not only Brian's psychiatric problems, but also his family's complete inability slash unwillingness to, to acknowledge that he had psychiatric problems. Well, when you, when you have someone as precious as Brian and yeah. as vulnerable, it is interesting the collection of people who protect and nurture and people who take advantage and drive wedges. Yeah. And that, that's kind of outlined in your book. And it, I just find it fascinating. It's sort of like the political climate of today. Are we going to heal or are we going to just further fracture to uh, advance our own selfish cause? Yeah. The thing with Brian's dad, Murray Wilson, who is sort of both, you know, I mean, if you, if you read stuff about the Beach Boys and Brian and Murray now, you know, uh, Murray kind of comes off by and large as the heavy, you know, if you go to see that movie, Love and Mercy, which is great in a lot of ways, they have a sort of simple portrait of Murray as just kind of this, this you know, this dark, angry, vicious kind of abusive father. But on the other hand, Murray was also, you know, he loved his boys in this incredibly passionate and yet unfortunately damaging way. And now when you talk to Brian, I mean, the interesting thing to me about Brian and how he expresses himself is that he uses the words love and fear sort of interchangeably. When he talks oh, about fascinating. Songs, when he talks about songs that he loves, he'll go, oh, man, that song is scary. I was so scary. You know, and I, I talk to him about that a lot over a period of a few years when I was working on the book and then earlier I've been working on some, some magazine stories about him. And I remember um, when he finally finished smile, that sort of, you know, that for long-term sort of legendarily unreleased psychedelic album from the mid sixties that he made with Van Dyke parks and never released. And it became kind of a, like in some ways, the keystone to this legend of Brian as this genius, you know, this, uh, but this kind of victimized or, you know, genius who's, who is too beautiful to, to you know, to, to, to breathe or, you know, to, 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 to exist on this planet. And, you know, and Smile was the album that was too beautiful to exist. And it was a very wonderful legend and myth, you know. Uh, and, I was, and I was enamored of it for decades and decades. And then, you know, and then late in life or in his early 60s, he gets the mojo and decides that he's going to he's going to finish it. And he did. And it was put it together. And and it was great. You know, I mean, it was nearly as great as everybody imagined it was going to be. And uh, he was rightly celebrated for it. And I asked him what it felt like because they debuted it on stage in London in, I think, January, February of, of 2004. And um, 
And it went from this myth that had been a cornerstone of his identity to, you know, walking out on stage and performing it in front of several thousand people. And uh, and when it was over, we were talking about it, he said that they gave him a 10 minute standing ovation. And I said, well, what was that like? He goes, well, it was scary. I go, well, how could it be scary? I mean, you, you had done the performance. They loved it. You were being celebrated. Uh, you know, how is that scary? And then he thought about it for a second. He goes, well, there's good scary, too. Uh-huh. And so that's, the, you know, that's what he's talking about. So, Fritz, to, to answer your question or to circle back to it, I mean, it is that way of thinking that, you know, I mean, the guy is capable of visionary thought. I mean, when he talked about writing, you know, the song God Only Knows, Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. you know, still has said for 50 plus years is the, the you know, the greatest pop song ever written, um, you know, and 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 it is, it, 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 it's, you know, I mean, it's beautiful, you know, and, and, and beautifully melodic and the, the melody and, and, and the harmony and the counterpoint and, the, and how it all sort of works together and flows and, and it, it's just this beautiful piece of work that's incredibly sophisticated on so many different levels. And Brian wrote, the guy who wrote the lyrics for it, this guy named Tony Asher, who co-wrote most of the album Pet Sound. And he told me that Brian wrote God Only Knows, the music to God Only Knows, from start to finish. In other words, from the point where there was no God Only Knows to the point where the music was entirely finished was something that he did in 18 minutes. And Tony Asher was sitting on the sofa in the living room watching him do it because he handed him the sheet of paper that had the lyrics, which is how they would write. And Brian looked at it and just began to play these chords and hum and whatever. And then it just flowed together like that. And later, Brian said that while he was writing it, he could see angels floating in the air above him. Yeah, that 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 maybe answers the question about why he considered things scary, because it was sort of out of his hands. It was divine intervention. He was just a vessel for this stuff to create itself. Pretty Yeah, I mean, but I think a lot of artists talk about songs kind of just falling out of the air into their mm-hmm. hands. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I think that's a for people, for really creative people, um, that's a, a, a fairly common experience. But I think that, you know, a lot of that stuff isn't necessarily... But I, but I think Brian was doing it on a level that was so, in many ways, technically so far beyond what most people are capable of doing. Well, I um, think he feels things more uh, acutely than and, uh, mm-hmm. than we do. And so uh, a natural human emotion that we would be like, oh, wow, that was we'd be able to, you know, identify the emotion. He it for him, fear is the primary emotion uh, because he he's he's just uh, s- such a such a, a raw nerve. And yeah. you you kind of describe his condition as schizoaffective disorder, and it's on the schizophrenia spectrum. But one can be high functioning. And talk a little bit about that, or what, and and your conversations with Brian about what what he knows about some some of his struggle. Well, I mean, he's lived it. I mean, he knows it about as well as anybody, I suppose. But he doesn't really talk. You know, Brian is less doesn't really intellectualize things on that level, you know, or at least not in the conversations I had with him. I mean, he tends to be a much more sort of visceral person. And um, I mean, I think he's a very bright guy and, and in a lot of ways, and, in, uh, and on some levels, he's a, he's a genius, but he doesn't really express himself or, or think in terms of, I don't think that he would come to grips with why he's feeling a particular way or why his, psych- you know, why his internal psychiatry is a particular way i think that that's mostly uh you know he just experiences it and tries to deal with it i think he understands it to a degree and i think that since he finally got hooked up with you know decent psychiatric uh treatment and medicine then it's been a lot more he's been way more functional you know i mean just the fact that smile exists now is testament to that and everything he's he's achieved in the last 20 odd years um how was it to have a working relationship with him? Was he forthcoming with his feelings about his life and his past and things like that? Or was it, uh, it, was it a different dance that you would do with someone else? Oh, it's a different dance. I mean, because Brian is very, I mean, he is very much like a raw nerve. I mean, that was my experience of him. I mean, some days when he was relaxed and happy and feeling good, you know, we would have these great talks and he could get very deep into stuff. And some days when he was anxious about something else, you know, he would just shut down, didn't want to talk at all. You know, so there were moments when we had really great, you know, wide ranging conversations and, 
you know, and he was funny and sharp and all this stuff. And then there were days when he just seemed like a completely different person and he really didn't want to, you know, to, to engage with much of anything. And unlike, say, somebody like Bruce Springsteen, who's way more socialized um, and has a real, I mean, I think that, you know, I think one of Brian's challenges in some ways, well, actually, I don't even know if that's true, but Brian is, or excuse me, Bruce Springsteen is remarkably sensitive to what other people are looking for in their connections with him. And that's one of his great strengths, not only as an artist, um, you know, and an icon, but also as a human being is that he really understands what he symbolizes to people. And he understands how important that is to people. And so like with fans and stuff, if someone encounters, if he encounters somebody and they come up to him, he's really good at, at, at being Bruce Springsteen. Um, and, and a lot of it's really legit. He really does care. You know, it's not, you know, he's not fronting on that level. I think, you know, people who know him and, and are part of his life and love him and are loved by him. I mean, I think he's a little more, you know, he's as complicated as anybody, but, um, you know, but, but Brian is very, you know, I think he's good with people when they meet him. I think, you know, he has a way of, there is a, a thing about Brian that can be very empathic. I think he really does feel what other, you know, he feels something about people when they walk into the room. Um, and he's a beautiful guy on a lot of levels, but he's also, you know, hugely passive aggressive. Um, and he's, you know, and one of the interesting things that someone said to me is, you know, I mean, a lot of the most trying situations in his life were in weirdly recreations of his original distorted relationship with his father. And you, it almost as if it's not almost as if it appears to be very much that he unconsciously recreates that relationship and that scenario, it, you know, over and over again throughout his life. There's always some heavy figure that he has to, you know, who kind of creates this gravity that he has to walk against. So but it's it from either him. it's familiar or it's what he believes he deserves. Yeah, or some combination of those things. But I mean, what one person told me, you know, about that that psychologist who became so abusive and you know and got disbarred and you know and rightfully it was a horrendous situation. This guy said to me, he "Goes well, look, even Doctor Landy wasn't Doctor Landy until Brian made him that way," <laughs> <laughs> which I thought was interesting. I'm, and I'm not really? blaming Brian. I'm not trying to blame the victim or anything or say, well, it's his fault or whatever. But it's just that. Brian is in many ways, so people sort of see him as, I mean, look, there were three Wilson brothers, and Brian is the only one who's still alive. And he was the one who spent decades on the, that short list of, of rock and roll stars that nobody expected to be alive much longer. And here he is, and he's nearing 80 years old, and he's still thriving. <laughs> you know, nobody would have guessed. You know, uh, there's uh, something... Uh... Uh, similar in the lives of Brian and Bruce, and that is that they both inherited psychological challenges from their dad. Brian had this schizoid diagnosis, but Bruce inherited a bit of his dad's depression, too. Well, the dad, um, uh, uh, Doug Springsteen, was bipolar, and mm -hmm. so that was like his problem. I mean, when he talked about his inability to keep a job and everything, I mean, he was you know, and the tragedy was that Doug was a very responsible guy and a very, in his, you know, and, and very concerned about his kids and very loving to his kids, except for the fact that, again, undiagnosed, untreated bipolar disorder. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, he would go from this incredible, you know, depression to fits of mania. And I think it was just a very, very difficult, probably excruciating to live in his skin for the longest time until he finally you know, much later in life, got, got connected with, with, you know, with, with medicine. Um, and when Bruce's parents moved to California, I, I know he internalized that as, as a loss because he was on his own before he was of age, I believe. Was that possibly a gift, at, like a freedom to soar? Oh, yeah, in, in a way, you know, I mean, I think that Brian, I mean, I think Bruce, you know, I mean, clearly he missed his family, you know, he missed his little sister and he missed his mom and dad. I mean, I, he had a more trouble, troublesome relationship with his dad, but that was, you know, I mean, and for many, many years, I mean, I think that was sort of described as, you know, as a generational conflict, you know, as, you know, the, in the late sixties, you know, the, you know, the establishment generation versus the young long hair rock and roll generation. But honestly, I mean, I think as time has gone by, I think we've come to realize that it had 
much more to do with his father's bipolar disease than anything else. I mean, I think it was extremely difficult for Doug just to get out of bed in the morning and function. And, you know, and he drank a lot at the end of the day. And I think that was about just trying to escape from the demons that were self-medicating. <clears throat> yeah, self-medicating. I mean, because there was nothing else. I mean, nobody knew what was going on. But, you know, but I, uh, his, but again, I mean, his love, for, and I think he found it very, very difficult to, to express his love for his son, who desperately needed that to be communicated. And what was interesting to me in talking to Bruce about it was that even given the many, many years of therapy that Bruce has had, and, you know, he's a very sophisticated guy, and his deep knowledge and, and understanding of, 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 you know, psychiatric dysfunction, talking about his dad, he still would get angry and talk about, you know, and there was, there was like one moment in particular where he just, you know, kind of snapped a little bit talking about him and uh, which I found, you know, I mean, which was striking and it, it just, but it took him a moment to kind of take a deep breath and let it simmer down. Was it unresolved I, stuff with his dad or it just was a bad memory for him? I think it was just a difficult memory. I mean, I think that they, I'm, I'm sure that they resolved their problems. I mean, one of the interesting things to talk about psychiatric phenomena is that at some point later in his life, Doug had a stroke. And when he recovered from the stroke, it completely, you know, he, he went from being a man who was completely unable to express his emotions to someone who couldn't stop expressing his emotions. Wow. And, and the thing is, is that he became, you know, uh, very sweet and it became, he, that wall kind of crumbled and he was much more able to express his love for his children. And, you know, and I think that, I don't know that his life was ever easy per se, but I think that that was, that was a nice coda for them um, to have him be so expressive with them after all oh, those years. Can I ask you a question? You've interviewed a lot of people for, for your book about Brian. How, I don't, I, this is probably like a uh, hundred hours of conversation, but describe the factions of, of the Beach Boys and what has, what it has broken off into uh, and over the years, the infighting over, over this magnificent catalog and these interesting personalities that a lot of whom are and were related. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, it's a very, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, the Beach Boys were a family band. There was Brian, uh, the oldest Wilson and, you know, and most brilliant Wilson brother, his brother, Dennis, who was the drummer, who um, was, you know, kind of the party, hardy, handsome guy. But beneath that, he was also enormously talented as a musician and a songwriter. And really, there were glimmers of his talent and moments of brilliance that he showed in his own compositions and his own productions that are astounding, frankly. Um, but he was also, you know, had just, you know, was, 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 was an alcoholic and a drug abuser and, and was self-medicating desperately. Uh, and then there was the youngest brother, Carl, who was the lead guitar player um, and kind of, and sort of the most stable, responsible one, even though he had his moments of trouble with drugs as well. But he really kept that band on the road for 30 plus years after Brian died until he died of cancer in the late 90s. Um, and Mike Love, the lead, sort of the guy, you know, the, the, the one, the singer, sort of the lead singer with the lower voice uh, and kind of the sort of MC guy in, in the shows is their first cousin. Uh, and then Alan Jardine, the fifth member uh, or original member, I should say, is, you know, a neighbor and a friend. Um, but that family, I mean, there's the Wilson families and Mike Love's mother was Murray Wilson's sister. And so he's essentially a Wilson, too. And it's a very complicated and, and in many ways sort of tormented family. And there's a lot of anger between them and a lot of, you know, and so Brian, I think there was quite a bit of jealousy in that family about, you know, who was successful and who wasn't successful and who got money, and who didn't get money. And um, so there was a lot of static and a lot of, you know, and it's the worst kind, which is the family kind. And so Mike was, has always been envious of the fact that people sort of fell, fell over talking about the brilliance of Brian and rightfully so, because Brian's brilliant, right? Mike co-wrote a lot of songs with Brian, but so, but Brian worked with a lot of other collaborators as well. And the one thing, you know, the brilliant thing about the Beach Boys comes from Brian. Mike is really good in a lot of ways and has written some really good lyrics and is, you know, not a bad musician himself. Uh, you know, he's a fairly musical guy, but he's also a pretty angry guy. And he has, for whatever reason, um, 
lashed out at Brian a lot over the years and has sued him a lot over the years. There's a lot of civil litigation that Mike Love uses to, and, you know, I mean, then some of it is, is really just head-cluttingly dismaying. He owns the, the, the name now, doesn't he? And he, Not, he's in he charge of the current manifestation of it. He, yeah, the Beach Boys, such as they are, are Mike Love's band, but he leases the name. He leases the, the right to, to use that, to use the trademark. And, you know, and Brian and the estates of Carl, you know, and Carl and Dennis, I think Al Jardine's a corporate member. They all take a certain, get a certain amount of money from Mike's touring. Um, so they get income out of it. But Mike and that other Beach Boys group, but they don't have any control over what he does. And to Mike's credit, you know, it's like I saw them. I've been a long time. Um, I kind of lost my interest in seeing the Beach Boys by, you know, uh, first of all, when when Carl Wilson passed away. And second of all, when, you know, and at which point Al Jardine kind of got booted from the band and the Beach Boys became uh, Mike Love and Bruce Johnston, who was sort of a substitute Beach Boy starting in the mid 60s and sort of in and out of the band for most of their career. But he was not an original member and 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 uh but but it's those two sort of at, with a sort of a rotating cast of musicians who you know sing play the parts and sing the parts and everything and the thing is it's like i don't find you know it's all oldies basically uh it's not the most artistically challenging thing but on the other hand you know they do a great job of playing a lot of really complicated beach boys music and it's sort of a fun show you know i mean the last time i saw it was probably 15 years ago but, um, you know, I prefer Brian's band, you know, Brian's got this, you know, started touring like 20 years ago, 22 years ago, very surprisingly, uh, after years and years of, of being putatively, you know, too frightened, you know, either not touring at all because he had stage fright or being on stage and being miserable and, you know, obviously not enjoying himself and not really being a very good performer. And suddenly he transformed himself into like a road warrior, basically. Right, we're, going to take a, what, we're going to take a commercial break and we're going to come right back. I have a couple more questions about Smile before sure. we talk about Paul Simon. Great. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contests, and squares. At MyBookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar-for-dollar match all the way up to 1000 bucks, and grab yourself a free entry into the famed MyBookie Super Contest. To play in the contest, all you got to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at $100,000 guaranteed cash prizes. The best part is MyBookie has thousands of bets to choose from. The full NFL slate, the NBA play, Playoffs, whatever you need, from live betting to championship futures. Every play you want to make is waiting for you at my bookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect your dough, use promo code MEDIAPATH, and double your first deposit now. It's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at my bookie. Weezy, can I just make a comment before you ask him some more yes, of your great please. questions about uh, Peter? The phenomenon of the Beast Boys to me was that they turned areas where there was no ocean, there were just oceans of cement, like where I grew up, into like surf culture, because their their music was so influential that kids were pretending that they were part of the surf culture, and many had never seen an ocean. And so, thus the skateboard. Yes, yes exa well, exactly. But I mean, uh, uh, I don't know that there's another instance um, in, in music history where anything like that has happened, where they sort of created this fantasy culture out of nothing. Yeah. Well, well, you know, sort of my sense is, you know, and I've always felt this is that those songs are as much as they're, they, you know, they're set in the world of surfing. They're not really about surfing and cars. It's about fear. It's about it's about anxiety. It's about you know, beautiful girls it, in bathing suits. Well, not only that, but it, it, it's about being alive on the frontier. You know, it's mm -hmm. their songs of the American frontier only by the early 60s. The frontier has been pushed out beyond the beach, you know, but it's still that same thing of. <laughs> of having some, you know, taking some sort of physical challenge and proving yourself out on the breakers, you know, don't mm -hmm. back down from that way and all that. But it's also, you know, all those songs in a lot of ways are about Brian's 
hopes and fears, you know, just escaping his his family, escaping this, you know, escaping essentially a, um, you know, some sort of uh, overwhelming and dark eyed authority, you know, and all That's those characters in that song, in those songs are, you know, they're escaping something, they're moving somewhere, they're on the, they're on the road, they're on the beach, they're, you know, and, and also there's, there's a real interesting just kind of, you know, uh, early 60s optimism to that, you know, the, to the setting. I mean, the idea, there's a song called The Girls on the Beach, which is one of my favorite early Beach Boy songs. And um, part of the chorus says, the girls on the beach are all within reach, which is like, mm-hmm. well, how democratic could anything be? I mean, it's not... <laughs> You know, they're not at a beach club somewhere. There's not like any separation between. I mean, I mean, some people will say, oh, Jesus, you're really over interpreting that. But I don't think so. I mean, the idea is if you can get out there with a surfboard and challenge the waves and prove yourself, anything is possible. And there's, you know, these are public school boys coming from a working class suburb of, of southern L.A., you know, so that was their world, you know, and that was still very much, you know. Uh, you know the the new deal america that's the you know the camelot america the idea that you know that that this is sort of a meritocracy and if you can prove yourself if you can do it you can be it and i think a lot of that's really really interesting and and i you know and it's sort of like i fell into in love with the beach boys in seattle in the early 70s and um i you know i don't obviously there's no surfing on puget sound and uh and second of all it's like to the extent that there were cars around i mean you know, my dad drove a Mazda, you know, and I, we were, the, we were those types of people. I didn't care about cars. You know, it's like I care about a car to the extent that I want to get to the grocery store and back, you know, and I like to have a comfortable car, but I don't want to have a flashy car. You know, it's like it just doesn't matter to me. It doesn't make any difference to me. But they understood. I mean, I think in a less conscious way than Springsteen did, you know, that that these cars are symbolic. I mean, it's freedom. It's the highway. It's the road. It's going anywhere you want to go. It's having, you know, you know, to to borrow a phrase, it's, you know, it's having fun, fun, fun till your daddy takes your cheater away. And there's that authority figure again, uh, you know? Yeah, there you go. So Brian, Brian was haunted for years by the Incomplete Smile Project. And it was sort of like an archaeological dig meeting an emotional, psychological intervention to get that project to blossom. And what are, what are the fears and insecurities that Smile triggered for Brian and what did completing it mean to him? Well, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, I don't know that it required a psychiatric, in, well, I, I, you know, I mean, I, the thing about it is that I think Brian's sense of his music, I think when he, when he asked, well, what are your favorite Beach Boy records? He'll talk about the stuff that are like, that he has fond memories of recording or things that he remembered doing. And I think that because he was psychiatric, you know, falling apart, you know, psychologically in the mid sixties, that that and especially you know the smile project was the one that coincided with his really you know sort of his collapse in a sense where he just sort of gave up um and and you know but i think that a lot of that had to do i mean my theory was that the reason why his work became so much more sophisticated in the mid-60s was that you know there was all this energy going through him and a lot of, you know, and some of it was creative and good and he could channel it into being creative and good. But a lot of it was this dark energy and that he was this, the recording studio and, and, and music was the one thing he had complete control over. And hmm. the more that he controlled it, the more elaborate it became. It became like this wall protecting him from the bad stuff in his life. And so the music became more and more complica- complex. He became more and more ambitious and it got more and more elaborate and more and more beautiful until suddenly he just couldn't take it anymore. And then it all blew up. And I think that Hmm. when he thought about that music, it was like, you know, it became in some ways, I mean, I hate to, you know, I don't, I don't know if you could compare it to his white whale or whatever, but I think it symbolized for him the point at which he lost control of his life. And that's not a good memory for him. Hmm. But I think that, you know, 25 years later, Suddenly he was in a position or whatever it was, practically 35 years later, I stand, you know, I should correct myself. It's like nearly 40 years later, he found himself, I think, feeling secure enough and confident enough um, that that he felt like he could open it up. You know, they asked him, they had done that tour of Pet Sounds where they played Pet Sounds from start to finish, which had never been done before. Um, and then after that, and it was a very successful tour. And the question was, what are we going to do next? And they talked him into it like how about performing some of the, you know, the, some of the smile music? 
like it's not finished, but we can record the parts that were finished up or we can perform the parts. And it was like, okay, that sounds cool. So he started getting into it. And then one day, you know, it was just like he was working with the guy that was sort of his band leader, Darian Sahanaja. And they were working on this song called Roll Plymouth Rock. And, uh, you know, and Darian, like, the, you know, like me and all these other maniacs knew all the bootlegs and everything. So he was already pr pretty familiar with the music. And they get to this part and uh, and he says, were there supposed to be words with this? And Brian goes, yeah, there were, because the recordings that exist are just the, the instrumental track. But he couldn't remember what they were. So he um, so he called up Van Dyke Parks, his collaborator, with whom he hadn't spoken in years. And just out of the blue, Van Dyke described it to me. The phone rings one day and Brian goes, you know, in that song, Roll Plymouth Rock, you know, what's the word after? And, and, and Van Dyke just goes like, beat it and he goes yeah that's right that's right goes, you know the rest of it and Van Dyke goes yeah i can write it down for you and he faxed up the lyrics and brian was like hey thanks a lot and it's like why don't you come by tomorrow and then they decided to finish it and they did you know and 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 it was this amazing this amazing thing you know and the interesting thing to me though was that so many people so many of the beach boy fans and brian wilson sort of super fan types got so sort of swept up and involved with this, the, the, the idea of smile and the perfection of smile and all this, that they were put out when Brian announced that he was going to finish it. And I remember seeing like on the part of the internet where people would go back and forth and talk endlessly about this. It's like, he has no right to do this. Oh, and it's oh like, this, this belongs to us now. It's not like the Brian Wilson of 2004 could in no way do what the Brian Wilson of, of, oh of 1966 gosh. could do. So I it's like, don't destroy don't my myth. Guitar. It's like, let me live with my, you know, it's like, because any piece of art that doesn't exist is way better than one that does because it does, <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, just it's a what, concept. It's an ideal. Yeah. And and I think and, and there was enough of smile floating around mm -hmm. and like on these bootleg tapes, like these sixth or tenth generation bootleg tapes that you would get or you know that I would get and people would get and you'd listen to it and some of the recordings were more clear than others, but the ones that weren't that had static or or had skips on them or it seemed like it was that it was beaming into you from a whole other solar system. Like it, you got to decode it, so you became a part of the process. Well, it was that much more rare and that much more beautiful because it was not of this earth in a way. Okay. And so, yeah, and you got to kind of decode it. And what's more, you got to decide how it was all supposed to fit together, what Brian intended. And, okay. you know, and I think part of the reason why people were upset was that it took away their favorite parlor game, which was arguing endlessly about where Brian intended, the, how Brian intended these pieces to fit together. Now no, there they was should a right answer up, and a wrong answer because it was going to exist. They should pick up the Talmud because there's a lot of Talmud study groups that they would enjoy. <laughs> they can get right back into it. I want to switch to Paul Simon real quick before we run out of time because um, I'm reading your book, Homeward Bound, The Life of Paul Simon. And I'm going to read the closing paragraph of this book's description on Amazon so that uh, you can grab a copy of this book and get into it with me. It reads as follows. Simon has lived one of the most vibrant lives of modern times, a story replete with tales of Carrie Fisher, Leonard Bernstein, Bob Dylan, Woody Allen, Shelley Duvall, Nelson Mandela, drugs, depression, marriage, divorce, and more. A life story with the scope and power of an epic novel. Carlin's Homeward Bound is the first major biography of one of the most influential popular artists in American history. And your book brings to life a Paul Simon, who is not just a talented singer-songwriter, but also a magnetic personality who has always been compelled and propelled to make exciting and important things happen in his life. So talk a little bit about Paul Simon and his personality. Well, you know, to me, the thing that interested me the most about the, about Simon, I mean, other over and above, like how beautiful his music is, you know, how much of his music is so fantastic and everything and how different it was and how much it evolved from the early 60s through you know to today uh you know is is it you know to me was all it's a story about identity and it's a story about assimilation and you know and paul you know like paul's family like my family are, are you know jewish immigrants and um a lot of what paul's uh you know in the simon family's journey to 20th century is very much sort of a projection of the Jewish experience in the 20th century, which is all about assimilation, getting into this, you know, and his thought, and it was really fascinating to me, the extent to which 
you know, people, you know, and Paul in particular, you know, his sense of identity and how fungible it is and how they can start. He and Artie started off as like pop teen idols in the mid fifties. And then, you know, as, as, uh, as, um, the, 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 the Tom and Jerry, you know, with that, Hey, school girl in the second row, <laughs> you know, and then, and then seven years later, there's Simon and Garfunkel, you know, doing hello, darkness, my old friend, you know, very <laughs> different thing, but you know, Paul, you know, they grew up, they were seven important years. They, they finished high school. They went to college. They, you know, they're very smart guys. They became sophisticated and got more involved in folk, folk music and, and politics and all that kind of stuff. And, but to me, the fascinating thing is that throughout Paul's career, his music career, he has just restlessly moved from this type of music to that type of music, you know, to, and moving from, from, you know, this subculture to that subculture. And first from, you know, from teen idol pop in the 50s, the rock and roll to folk music, to sort of psychedelic pop in the mid 60s, to this more kind of, you know, and then he got into reggae and, and Southern R&B and gospel. And then that kind of New York sort of, you know, modern art music. And then, you know, and then onward and upward until he gets to the South African music. And then the, that, that's what I was going to say. I, I think his real contribution, like a third act contribution of his career has been he sort of introduced the world to world music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I mean, in, in the album. Existed, but 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 he definitely, you know came in hard and I think transformed a lot of people's sense of, of, of the music that was available to them and and also transformed the lives and careers of the musicians that he worked with. Oh, yeah. What's interesting too is like he was influenced by a lot of bootlegs that were going around of these different, he didn't even know a lot of times what country the music came from. It was way, way pre-internet. Go ahead, Fritz. Oh, no, I, I was going to say essentially the same thing, like uh, Graceland, where he used Lady Smith Black Mombasso. Uh, that was our first exposure to like these beautiful acapella choral pieces from South Africa. They're, I think that's one of the most beautiful albums ever produced. And it was the first time it was brave and and also expensive. There were yeah. a lot of people on stage during that period. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's a beautiful record. I mean, the problem is it kind of came a little bit besmirched by his his sort of inability to um, or unwillingness really to, to reckon with the, uh, you know, the political ramifications of going to mm -hmm. South Africa to do it. And, you know, obviously he didn't go there to take advantage of anybody and he paid them as well as he could, and you know, distributed song credit, you know, writing credits and everything. And, you know, and helped grow careers um, for folks. But on the other hand, you know, I mean, you can sort of say, you know, there's, you could do a, a, an entire series of episodes about, appropriation, you know, cultural appropriation and what's, what's appropriate, what isn't appropriate and all this sort of, you know, for people to do um, what is appropriate appropriation, as we say. But, um, <laughs> but, um, but, but, you know, but ultimately, I mean, I sort of, you know, to me, the interesting thing is the song, uh, uh, you know, a lot of this, you know, the sort of the first major hit single in, in South African pop music in the 20th century was a song called Mbubi by a guy named Solomon Linda, which is a song that eventually migrated to the West and the United States and which we became known as uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And Solomon Linda was a, was a Zulu who did this kind of Zulu choral music that was kind of a part of the pop music scene of South Africa in the day. But one unintended benefit of, of imperialism is that, you know, while the Westerners are coming to South Africa to rape the land and take, you know, and pillage and all this and, and do terrible things. They also brought over their culture. And a lot mm -hmm. of that, like they brought ragtime music and early jazz music. And Solomon Linda heard that. And what Mbubi was, was his weaving together uh, Zulu chants with pop, Western pop music, which was actually African-American music to a great degree. And so the music, the reason why Paul Simon, when he finally heard South African counts of jive and Umbakanga music, the reason it sounded so familiar to him was because the music he loved, that he thought it was, uh, that it reminded him of, which was uh, doo-wop music and early R&B, descended from the same type of music that Township Jive did. And so there's this sort of, so the whole thing is unified before he was even born. And wow. The first South African, one of the sort of discoveries that I made or realizations I had is that the very first South African song or inspired song that he, that he recorded was actually recorded in 1961 as a B-side 
for this band he was sort of producing and kind of performing with called um, uh, Tico and the Triumphs. And uh, there was, a, I think it was their song Locomotive or something. And the B-side was called Wildflower, which has this kind of bogus sort of Hawaiian thing, but it's, but it's also got this kind of South African sort of uh, lilt to it because he was so inspired by the lion sleep tonight, the, the, you know, the formerly the Mbubi. And to me, that's that, that there's a kind of magic in that. And there's a kind of, you know, I feel like, you know, I, you know, and Paul's a complicated person and a very difficult person in a lot of ways, but I feel like he was as conscientious as he ever gets in terms of trying to share credit with the South African people. And yeah, I, I think he thought that they were the victims of double apartheid. So they, yeah. they lived in an apartheid state, but they also, because of no one was trading with them, they weren't able to get their music out. And I, I think he felt like art and music should not be blockaded. Right, exactly. And, you know, but I mean, you, you end up in a situation where, you know, because of the way that the, that the, the way that the, uh, the boycott was worded, there was uh, like a racially mixed band from South Africa who had a hit in England. And they went and they were like, you know, the South African government was constantly shutting down their shows and trying to shut down this band because they were, you know, it was a, it was a desegregated band, it was an integrated band. And uh, they went to England to try to get some traction, you know, to, you know, because their song was getting some interest there. But because they came from South Africa, the letter of the boycott was that they couldn't perform on on British TV, and they got sh- all their performances got shut down, even though they were part of the solution, not part of the problem. Wow. And and I'm not trying to say that, you know, and, and I'm not carrying water for the for the South African regime or or for uh, apartheid. All I'm saying is. It was a very, you know, that there's a, there was a certain amount of nuance, particularly with that group, and you know, and 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 the idea that a that a South African band that does this incredibly radical thing of 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 having black and white musicians playing on the same stage, which was anathema to the South African regime, was still shut down in England by people because of apartheid. You know hmm. that they didn't. You know, so there are a lot of uncomfortable sort of paradoxes taking place. Before we close, I want to take a look at Paul Simon, Bruce Springsteen, and Brian Wilson. In each case, we see a brilliant kid who had a complicated relationship with a difficult father. Do you see this as as a dynamic that will make or break a genius, depending on the rest of the elements of the personality? That's an interesting question. You know, it's interesting. I mean, you get a lot of... You know, it's like I've written all, you know, it's so many of the books that I've written and the artists that I've studied and written about always end up sort of being stories about depression, you know, which to me seems, and and I think that, you know, I mean, there are difficult dads, um, you know, and Paul Simon's dad was, 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 again, very loving, but also very envious and very, you know, and would say these terribly diminishing things to his son, and I think kind of made it difficult for him in a lot of ways. Um does it, you know, I don't know that it's a hundred percent of the time. I mean, Bob Dylan, I think, had a great relationship with his dad, you know, or at least not a troubled relationship. And I think, you know, not nothing is, you know, and maybe that's the exception that proves the rule or something. But I think, you know, I mean, I think having a certain amount of static in your life, I mean, I think it's a very common thing for artists, particularly artists that people think of as being geniuses, um, who are functioning on a level that's so far beyond other people in some ways. Um, you know, I think a lot of that comes from, 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 you know, sublimating some sort of difficulty, some sort of anxiety, some trouble, some darkness in your life. And, 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 and your genius is your ability to turn that into light, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, John Lennon said famously, you know, genius is pain, which is to a degree, you know, I mean, which is true to an extent, but then you look at somebody like his partner, you know, Paul McCartney, who is, who is had a great relationship with his parents, but his, his mother died when he was young. But, Paul, you know, and Paul's ability is, you know, I mean, his, you know, he, he's, I, I think he's as much of a genius as those guys, but he wears it that much more, you know, he wears it so lightly. And yeah. I think that's why people find him aggravating. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he does. He, that's an interesting observation. People are aggravated by his joy. Well, it's like Paul, you know, John, I mean, the thing about John's like, oh, genius is pain. And, Paul's yeah. thing is more like genius is a breeze. 
you know, and <laughs> because he can just sit down and whip these things out. And but you just sometimes you wish you would work harder, but, but you know, you know, or Fair feel enough. it more intensely. But on the other hand, you know, what he does is pretty magic. I mean, he's capable of an extraordinary magical thing. So it's like, you know, you got to give it up for Paul McCartney, no matter how easy he makes it look. Now, do you always um, do you always have an opportunity to meet and interview everyone that you write about? Is that something that has to come first that that no, you're not? I never I never met Paul McCartney, for instance. Uh, and I didn't really I had encountered Paul Simon, but many, many years earlier uh, and just sort of a say hello type of deal. But it wasn't. But, you know, I mean, the thing is, obviously, in some ways, it's preferable to be able to talk to the people that you're writing about. You know, my, the book I have that's coming out in January is a thing about Warner Brothers Records, and I managed to, to actually get to, you know, spend a lot of time with Mo Austin, who was the head of that company, and a lot of the people who were artists and, and executives of that company. So that was very valuable. But on the other hand, you know, the Paul Simon book, I was disappointed that I didn't get to talk to Paul, but on the other hand, it kind of freed me up. I actually felt weirdly liberated because the story I really wanted to tell was less about his personal life and it was about the larger sort of cultural experience, larger cultural context, which again is this idea of identity. I mean, I think that Paul, um, personally, he's such a complicated and, and prickly character. It's To me, it's much more engaging and much more interesting to think about him in that larger cultural context. And what, what I thought was really fascinating, again, was, was the story of identity and, you know, who, you, you know, who he is or who he's felt he was and why he felt like he could, why it was so easy for him to sort of absorb other cultures and other, other voices and be able to project them through him, even as he's telling stories about his own life. I mean, the fascinating thing about Graceland is that it's just incredible South African music, but these songs are about living on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, you know, and living that life, you know, that the whole thing about, uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the, diamonds the, in the soles of my shoes. Yeah, there, there's that one. Talk about being in the bodega and all that. Mm -hmm. Even though that setting, that song sounds sounds, it almost seems to kind of exist in a fantasy world that's part New York and part Africa. But a song like um, "I Know What I Know" when he talks about uh, talking to the woman who was given a Fulbright, you know, being at a cocktail party, and, <laughs> you know. And, <laughs> And didn't I see you at the cinematographer's party? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's not happening in, in, in the township. You know, that's happening in the upper <laughs> not west side quite. of Manhattan. I'm going to tell one Paul Simon story because I did get to interview him when Graceland came out. And I don't know if he tells this story a lot. I don't think he gets interviewed that much. But so I don't know if everybody knows this, but when he was married to someone named Peggy, they had a party and uh, someone said, hey, uh, can Pierre Belez come over? I guess he was the conductor of the New York Philharmonic. So Paul was just like, uh, yeah, he can come over. So, so he comes over, he stays for about an hour. He has a nice time. And as he's leaving, you know, he's been introduced to Paul and, and to his wife, Peggy. And as he's leaving, he says, thank you for having me. Goodbye, Al. Goodbye, Betty. And he like completely blew it on both of their <laughs> names. And that's what they affectionately called each other. But I just think a lot of people who sing that song have don't really they know it's about some <laughs> Where kind did of that like, come from? Yeah. like mm -hmm. sort of desperate search for your your lost life or something or feeling <laughs> I don't know what is it about to you? I think he's talking about having something of a midlife crisis, yeah you know yeah. <laughs> I mean a familiar story you don't have to go to Africa to have one of those but I mean but that was how he set his up but but again I mean this idea you can call me Bob and you know or whatever it is Al and Betty and and uh, uh, you can call me Al it's like but again, you know, I mean, but that's part of that artistic magic is being able to take that dark sort of horrible feeling of, 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 of having wasted your life or not being certain what your life is about and channeling it into not only a song, but one that's so catchy and oddly life affirming as that one. You know, I mean, it's a beautiful, beautiful song and everything. And it's, and, uh, you know, there's your artist. I mean, taking a random moment that happened to you 15 years earlier and being able to tuck it into the middle of a, you know, into a pop song that, you know, that not only that, it's like, you know, it's like a pop song, uh, you know, set that South African music. Um, so and always, always with Paul Simon, there's that juxtaposition of the music invoking one feeling and the lyrics another. And mm -hmm. it's stunning what he's created. And you, you know, you can listen to it over and over again and 
you find yourself there and you find yourself reading something else into it. I mean, I, I guess if I'm thinking about it, that even so, someone important doesn't even know his name and the name of his wife after spending time at his house, that mm-hmm. that's this kind of like this feeling of, am I actually here? Do I matter? Uh, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I, th- I think that they made the best of it. I mean, I think they thought it was hilarious, probably yeah. if only because Paul Simon at that point, I mean, and has been since he was 23 or 24 years old, has been one of the more famous people in the country. You know, it's like he walks down the street and people are like, oh, my God, it's you. You know, you walk into a room and the, and, and the weather changes, you know. But and, still, and, you're going to think about, but not to Pierre Boulez. Yeah. That's all you're going to remember. <laughs> if you're a comedian, you're going to look and see, because Fritz will tell you, you'll see the one person who isn't laughing. That is all you'll see. Of course. <laughs> That's just human nature, I mean, or, or artistic nature or whatever. But it's like, you know, but if that didn't exist, but I mean, but that's the whole thing. I mean, what you're trying to do, that that creative impulse to a great degree, I, for a lot of people, I think, is just trying to fill this hole inside. And uh, you keep shoveling art into there and, and hoping that the, the money and the applause and whatever is going to be going to make it better and of course the problem is it never really does and either you know and hopefully you get to a point where where you find something else to stick in there like your wife and family or or something else or you know religion or cocaine i mean i don't know i mean obviously you don't want it to be cocaine but 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 you know i think a lot of that again i mean artistic that impulse is sublimation it's it's finding a way to turn darker energy into light and And um, and it became a song so that's yeah or it became a whole, you know, a whole record. I mean, and that's, you know, you see it over and over again. I mean, hopefully what happens is you get to be Bruce Springsteen and carry it more lightly as time goes by. Get those 30 years of therapy and, and then the right prescription for antidepressants and, and you can be happier in your 60s than you were when you were in your 30s. Wow. Peter, nice. let me ask you one question about your Warner Brothers book. Uh, what does Mo Austin say about the future of the record business? Do, are, are they good? They're reconfiguring now. Are they going to survive? Or what, what are what are his thoughts about that? You know, I mean, I think Mo, well, for one thing, Mo's ninety three, and he's sharp as a tack. I mean, the guys, you know, and he was the chairman. You know, for folks who might not know it, he was kind of the visionary chairman of Warner Brothers Records. He helped create this style of of record company that was very much about focused on the music and the art and actually put making good records above and beyond making, making hit records. But, you know, but the, what he seemed to intuit and what eventually not even all that eventually, what very quickly became clear was that by making great records, like, you know, uh, all the records by Joni Mitchell and James Taylor and the Grateful Dead and Prince and REM. And, you know, when you invested in the artists and let them be artists, then you would make records that people wanted to hear and they very quickly became extremely successful and remained that way for 30 years practically um, through many, many different eras of, of, of popular music, which is sort of extraordinary. Uh, what his sense of it, you know, but I mean, I, you know, it's hard to know. I mean, I'm, I'm like, you know, 35 years younger than he is. I mean, I'm 57, but it's, but I don't. I feel like anything I might possibly say about the the music industry or what I think the new type of pop music is going to be is I wouldn't want to hear it from me because I'm out of it. You know, that's the sort of stuff for people my kids' age to figure out. You know, it's like or what the medium's going to be. I mean, it's hard to know. I mean, you know, 20 years ago, who would have thought that um, that that CDs were going to basically cease to exist mm-hmm. and that that it was all going to be MP3s. And now maybe MP3s are on their way out. I mean, you know, people are listening to vinyl again, of all things. You know, it's sort of, I don't think vinyl is going to become the dominant medium again. But, um, you know, I, I, you know, it, it's difficult. It's, it's, I think for guys like Mo, who came of age in the time and sort of were led the industry to a point where people were buying records to, you know, by the billions and billions every year. Um, it's hard to imagine that, you know, things the fact that the industry would have evolved to a point where actually buying the records that you don't need that anymore. You just plug in and you, it comes at you through the air. And that's one treat is, is reading, reading one of your books and then be able, being able to jump on Spotify and listen to exactly what you're talking about in that moment. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, you know, I mean, in a lot of ways, I mean, the problem is it's sort of, the artist gets dealt out. I mean, at least the way that it is right now, the, you know, when it comes to streaming and everything, I think, you know, the old problem remains thus is that the, uh, the, um, 
the artist doesn't make nearly as much money as they deserve. And it all goes, if it's not going to the record company, it's going to, you know, to whoever, you know, to, you know, to Apple or, or whoever owns the, you know, the bandwidth, uh, you know, and the, and the, you know, the, the cellular service and everything. And that's kind of the problem. You end up giving thousands and thousands of dollars to, to the man and the artist who creates the, the, the art that you love gets nothing. And they mm-hmm. say, well, you know, music wants to be free. So you should just perform and sell t-shirts and stuff. And it's like, sort of, it wasn't, I mean, I, I guess that's the gig no. now. And, and, but it used to be that you could just make beautiful records and, and everything, but you know, who knows? I mean, maybe think, but I'm an old guy, you know what? Nobody, my kids don't care what I think or, or what I think the problems in the industry <laughs> are and good for them. I think they care deeply. Um, we're going to have to close it and go watch election results. It's like a, it's like a really tricky day for all of us. And uh, we really appreciate spending it with you, Peter, and taking our Thank minds off. Thank you so these. much. What a great conversation, Peter. My pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Uh, it's, fun. Uh, your books are genius. They're brilliant. They're, they're enjoyable. They're informative. They make you think. And they're, they're just uh, highly recommended. And I'm going to continue reading them. I have a few more to go, and then we'll have you back. <laughs> Thank you very sound? much. All right. Here comes the closing credits. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, MediapathPodcast. I want to thank our guest, Peter Carlin. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filipiak, Thomas Hubble, Brian Bennett, and you. I am Louise Palenker, here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path.